Welcome back to the Bible Reading Podcast. I am your host, Brianna Shelnut, and I'm joined by the wonderful, by the amazing, by the awesome, by the relatable Nessagoth. We have a super awesome guest that we both know, and he's just really amazing. He's a great leader. He has wisdom. It is Pastor Matt Schaefer. Hey, guys. <laughs> Pastor Matt is a very talented musician. Um, he's done kids ministry, which makes us all the most holy people in the world because we've all done kid ministry, and we are just so excited to have him here and for him to tell his story. Yeah. Um, I don't, so I don't really know where to start. I, um, you know, I guess I can just, I could go back way back, (laughs) but, uh, I guess I'll just kind of start, you know, I, when I got, I came to the Lord in 1995, um, after spending roughly about three years, four or five years in in some deep drug abuse. Uh, But at least three to four of those years was, and I say, have to say three to four because I was on drugs a lot during that time. And there's, there's obviously some time gaps, but, um, uh, but I spent about three years in a cult that, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you'll hear this in my story, but later revealed itself to be really at its core, a satanic cult. Um, and I know when I use that word, you know, that I was sharing with you guys kind of offline that, uh, this story of mine is not a part of my story that I share, uh, or I've shared publicly, uh, or often. And it's a hard story to share because, um, I still have connections with some of the people, uh, that were involved during that time. Uh, and, uh, I'm very conscientious of, how they would receive my story even today. And I have shared my story and they know it. Uh, and there's just been conflicts there uh, through the years. And I still care deeply about them coming to the truth. And the truth that I want them to come to is not really all the details of my story. The truth I want them to come to uh, is that Jesus is light. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when we let the light in, he changes everything. Yeah. And that includes your version of whatever you think your story is. <laughs> and so um, I always want to be careful not to say anything that's misleading, which is kind of also another tension I have sharing this story. And um, because when I say I was in a satanic cult, um, that probably inspires very Hollywoodish mm-hmm. images of blood sacrifices, drinking blood, you know, mm-hmm. a goat laying on some altar in a red room um, and a bunch of people, in black coat cloaks or something like that. And, um, while I will say, yes, we were very well known for our dress and it was all black dyed hair, black fingernails and trench coats. Mm. Uh, we were trench coat mafia before trench coat mafia was ever even a term for pop, pop culture. Mm. And, um, while yes, there was an image of that, that's kind of probably one of the hinge points I've leaned into in my story is that it's our cult was one that was, basically masked and hiding in plain sight. Um, and, uh, but I'll tell you a little bit, maybe quickly how I kind of got into it and why yeah. there was an appeal before there was a reality that I didn't even realize I was in the middle of. So let me stop you right there. And I'm just going to 
quickly clue in our listeners that, you know, we brought Pastor Matt Schaefer here just to shed some light on some of the very real things that go on during this holiday, during Halloween. And we just wanted to show a different perspective from someone who was um, in in occult like things and who did um, witness, you know, sacrifices and stuff like that. And we understand that this is a hot topic and that this is a very tense topic for a lot of believers. So just keep your uh, keep your mind open you know, um, keep your hearts open, ask the Holy spirit to, you know, give you a new awareness and a new freshness for this topic about whether or not Christians should celebrate Halloween or whether or not we should partake or what's okay. And what's not, um, obviously God gives us and God gives everyone their own convictions and you have to work out your own salvation. Obviously you have to work out your own, um, things, that you compromise on or don't, but we just ask you while you listen, you know, just listen with an open heart and an open mind. And, um, you know, his story is powerful. His testimony is very powerful. So Mm -hmm. go ahead. Sure. Um, so when I was, uh, my mom came to the Lord when I was about 10 years old. Um, we, I did not grow up in church. I had one understanding of, of God itself. I mean, God himself, but at the time it was just, there's this God and he dwelt in, um, he was a big God who dwelt in big churches that were really too small for him. Mm. And uh, I grew up in South Louisiana, um, just outside of New Orleans and some in New Orleans and uh, lived some down there in the city. And uh, having that background, uh, my mom got saved radically. And uh, the int- the transformation in my mom's life, obviously I was only 10, but the transformation in my mom's life definitely um, appealed to me. I had a supernatural hunger from the time I was even in second, third grade, checking out books on witchcraft from a, from a, a, a school library. And um, even before my mom came to the Lord, these things stood out to my mom. Like, what is this? What, you know, this mm-hmm. doesn't, what are, you, what are you doing here? And uh, so I had a fascination for occult things. And um, and then when my mom came to the Lord, you know, just I spent a few years growing up in church from 10 to 13. Around 13, I started, uh, started experimenting with drugs. But outside of my own personal world, this was probably around 1985 to 1987, and you can actually look this up online. Uh, a very famous newscaster came to our hometown after reports had circulated nationwide of some animal sacrifices happening on farms. Mm-hmm. And this lit up the topics at church, yeah. just in, in my, my circles and in my city. And again, this was a nationwide broadcast. This, and I don't want to say the guy's name, but mm-hmm. everybody would know him if I said his name. Um, and or at least most of your listeners, probably 35, 38 and above yeah. would know mm-hmm. him. Uh, but he, he comes to our hometown, does this whole report. And and one point of his report, he goes into this old abandoned uh, shack where sharecroppers, uh, former slaves, mm. used to live. Mm. This was on a good friend of mine's property. And I, I was growing up in church with him. And we used to go inside this old shack and because the, the sat, uh, satanic stuff was being so sensationalized, 
we would go in the shack and man, we would do things like paint pentagrams on yeah. <laughs> in red on, uh, in, on the walls and just paint like hail Satan. And we didn't believe any of this stuff. We were just kind of like being a little, you know, yeah. just uh, a little trying to be a little edgy and a little rebellious. Yeah. Uh, but obviously we, we were kind of thinking this stuff is funny. We saw some very religious parents, both he and I, right. um, and my brother and his brother. And then along comes this whole event where that goes nationwide news. And this newscaster, he comes to uh, the field where this house is and on live television, he goes into the room and he sits there and he says, oh, this is a place where we think there's been some satanic activity. If you look on the wall right here, you see these pentagrams and this red that's on this board. We think this is blood and we're going to get this board and we're going to send it off. And I am telling you, me and my friends lost it. Thought this was just the most hilarious, ridiculous thing we had ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a hinge point in a hook mm-hmm. because... I saw very quickly how people even outside the church were quick to come to conclusions. Now, do I say it was fair? Absolutely. It was probably fair, but come on. It was very clear that wasn't blood on that board. It was red paint. And so he took what was a story possibly that, and yes, there were animal sacrifices happening on the farms around where, um, where my friends and I were being stupid Mm -hmm. and, um, and he took that to a whole nother level. That sensationalism of it is probably what opened a door when mm-hmm. I met who I'll refer to as my cult leader. Um, at that time, I was probably 13, 14, 15 max. And I meet this guy who all my friends are enamored with. I would say he was a brilliant songwriter, a brilliant musician. Um, and I quickly just became enamored with whatever this guy had to say. Starting out 1415, I had no clue of yeah. the depths yeah. uh, of anything. And, and, and when I say cult too, it doesn't need to be very organized mm-hmm. uh, to be a cult. We watch a lot of broadcasts on television yeah. or, or Netflix these days, these documentaries about this cult or that cult and mm-hmm. how they seduce people and, and abuse people. Uh, there was seduction happening and there was abuse happening, but it wasn't like some orchestrated organizational mass team. In fact, it was quite the antithesis. Mm-hmm. It was hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started to really lean in and my friends did, and there was drugs inv- around wherever this guy went. What was odd was this guy didn't do all those drugs, mm-hmm. especially hallucinogenic drugs. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and so I kind of got familiar with this individual, this cult leader, um, that way. Later on, a girl that I began to date was enamored with him and just really was diving into his philosophies and, uh, which normally came out in the form of poetry. And some of your listeners may, may understand when I say, and this is a description, but there was a Gothic movement, Mm -hmm. Gothic movements for those who maybe don't know, was really a movement of more artistry and it was um, a more, uh, what's the word? Not just a cult, but um, a more taboo. People that were really attracted to a darker sense of things. We hung out in graveyards um, and, and people were doing sacrifices in graveyards. No, I, I didn't, I didn't do any of that. Um, but we were, we, we found our community and our peace around what was dead. Mm-hmm. 
And, and that was very clear. Our ideas of romance were very centric to maybe a Romeo Juliet uh, gothic affair where real love was willing to Die. kill its own self mm-hmm. for another, which is definitely shrouded in comparison to the gospel where Jesus didn't just necessarily, yeah. you know, yeah, he gave up his own life, but he didn't take his own life. Right. And there was a difference there. There's a difference in surrendering than there is in just this self-abuse mm-hmm. to uh, to express love. And so those were some of the things that kind of sucked me in. One day after about three years of just kind of being in the middle of it, and I could go in again, I can go into details of things that happened and things that were done. Um, I will say this, just, you know, my, um, uh, my cult leader was good friends with a very famous author. Um, and again, I don't want to mention her name, but she, I will say this and you you listeners may probably can do their math and figure it out. But, um, uh, she was a very, uh, very famous author about vampires Mm. and he was good friends with her. And every year she would host an event in New Orleans called the annual gathering of the coven, which was on the outside, just a good concert, right? A very dark Gothic songwriters, of whom my our cult leader was um, uh, the headliner, mm-hmm. and um, we would go to these events, and there would come a point every year where there was a song, a specific song called "The Offering" that he would sing, and in a room full of people that probably just came for good music, we were the weirdos who would go and line up in single file fashion to pay homage almost as in worship while he sung this song that was clearly taken from text in in the book of revelation to tear down the Catholic church, the Pope and the church at large in general. And we would stand in solemn assembly paying homage to that. People would ask us, y'all Satanists? And we collectively would say yes. But behind the scenes, we would walk away going, those idiots, they actually believe we're Satanists. Mm. So when we were in smaller circles among ourselves, we knew we were putting up a facade that we were quite content. If anybody came trying to preach the gospel to us or talking about those devil worshipers, everything, we would play to it. Mm. We would make up stories. We would borrow character of of sensationalized Satanism, uh, uh, Satanism, and we would basically make the general public and all those who did weren't within in our circles. Um, we would do whatever it took to make sure that they did think we were Satanists. And but again, behind the scenes, it was no, nah, we're just we're just pretending. And I carried along with that like it was a fun party mm-hmm. for three years, and and then after about three years, one day I former girlfriend comes up to me and she says, Hey, um, I think this is a real cult, like the real deal. And uh, I, I thought, no, I dismissed it. And I said, no. And she gave me her X, Y, Z's, why she thought it was. And I had a hard time shaking some of that. So I thought, well, I'll go talk to uh, my cult leader's best friend who would kind of be, we would joke about, he would be the second in command. And so again, it was a joke, but it was well understood that if anybody was a second in command, quote unquote, it would be this guy. So I went and spoke with him and I said, Hey, is this, is this a real cult? And it should have caught me because his response was, well, that depends on how you define a cult. Hmm. To which then he proceeded to tell me 
story upon story of events that had happened dating back to those national events that were happening in our hotel, uh, hometown that our cult leader actually had a hand involved in. Mm. So while we were pretending, there was real stuff happening. But there's something to, and I, I want to try to maybe help listeners understand this aspect of it. Again, we were hiding in plain sight. So behind closed doors, it was just a joke. Out in the public, everybody who saw us would have thought it was. But at the center of it all was some deep philosophy. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll venture to say this because I think as believers, we know the truth of this. We, we know the truth that combats this. But there was this general concept that if you were taught that darkness was a social construct, and if, if you were taught it was dark, then maybe... It was by people, if you were taught it was dark by people who later proved they could not be trusted, then what was dark very well might have been light. And that's what the central idea was that our our cult leader propagated. Mm -hmm. We would do drugs to literally dive into the recesses of consciousness to hopefully find the roots of our fears Mm -hmm. and unleash those fears thereby through darkness coming to light. Mm. That was that was a pathway. The reason why I say this was very much a satanic cult was because Anton LaVey, the guy who writes the satanic Bible, right. um, now even he writes in the very opening of the book that Satanists do not believe in a Satan. Mm-hmm. So while they claim to worship Satan— they don't really believe there is a Satan there to worship because the very logical thought is if there was a Satan to worship, there must have been a God who created him. Yeah. And to worship the created would be ridiculous, even to the Satanist. Mm. So satanic worship is really rooted in what uh, some scholars and, and studiers of this kind of subject would, would understand is more pantheism, which is I am God. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. You can be God. Yes. You can be your own God and, and I'll be my God. And, and so that idea that I've got to break away from social construct, mm. reject all that is representative of God, Satan to the Satanist represents the epitome of going head to head with that social construct. Okay. So mm-hmm. that was my, now I, I can see and explain that stuff now from a place of light. But again, and those who know me apart from my story know that I work uh, as as a as a pastor. Mm-hmm. But in a pastoral role, I work a lot in conditional logic flow. Uh, these are software development, and I, I work to help make sure churches and people can work together mm-hmm. as they work for churches. And and in conditional logic, it's hard to argue. When you see this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, and you go, well, that's a very good train, uh, or that makes sense, but it doesn't make it truth. And so th- that's another thing that has always made it hard for me to share this part of my story is because I can, I still cannot unsee the sense of it all. It can make sense, but I know and I see where it leads. Mm-hmm. So that kind of came to light. They shared, you know, they said, hey, this is what that is. Um, or this is, this is maybe, maybe this is a real cult. Maybe it, maybe it isn't. You kind of decide for yourself with the facts that I've just kind of laid out to you. And, mm-hmm. and again, I'm not even going to go into the real sacrifice stuff that was happening and even behind the scenes again, symbolically, uh, but deep darkness. 
mm-hmm. a real ritual practice that was steeped in symbolism. Can you give one example? Yeah. Okay. So um, there was a um, there was one ritual they called the ritual of the pig. And what they did was they literally stole a pig from a, f- a local farm, brought it back to, quote, the compound, as we called it. And we did that because our our involvement was right around the time of David Koresh uh, in the um, the Waco mm-hmm. um, yeah. fiasco, you know, depending on how you see it. But it was, it was darkness there, too, and mm-hmm. there was some political craziness happening there. Um, and so as a mockery to social construct, we called our cult leader's house the compound. Mm. And uh, because that's what they called the David Koresh place. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so they, at this ritual of the pig, this was before I came along. They, uh, again, so people say, let me pause right here. I want to give context. What I say may easily be dismissed as hearsay. But Nessa, if you walked in this room right now soaking wet and you said it was raining outside. You would believe me. I would believe you. The evidence would say it's right there in front of you. Yeah, and the evidence is well. How do you, how can you know this guy wasn't telling you some some fictitious story? Number one, he had no reason to lie to me because I was already an insider. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, the other evidence that I will not go into was the fruit of it in people's lives, and especially when this ritual was over. And so he tells me this ritual, and he says they they stole a pig from a farm. They grabbed two two by fours. They came back to the compound. They put the pig in the center of a circle of them. And while they were all on drugs, they said a mock prayer casting their sins upon this pig. They would then proceed to beat the pig to death. The agreement was whoever the pig died facing would take upon the sins of the whole group. And then there were some other acts that would, would follow but then when those acts followed, that person was recognized as the wisest among the bunch. Mm-hmm. My friend, the second in command, basically says, I guess you can figure out who the pig fell in front of. And I said my cult leader's name, and he said, yes. And I was like, well, I think this is a real thing. Mm-hmm. He said, well, it was all symbolism, and, you know, it's all, you know, it's, we're just trying to fight back the darkness and, and really grow and find out what really is light. Uh, there were other things as far as grave robbing, uh, grave robbery that was happening. Uh, that stuff did involve even the high school um, teacher that was involved with us. And again, the details that were laid out with the context didn't give me any reason to not believe it. Mm-hmm. So, and if that wasn't enough, I had to walk away and digest that. Mm-hmm. Then comes Halloween 1994. Wow. Um, that night, um, we all go to the compound. There's, I don't even remember how many it was. There's 20, 30 of us probably. Um, there's a bonfire and we're all uh, doing uh, a very popular hallucinogenic drug. And I understand, again, those who would you know, challenge my story can say that, well, you know, be dismissive of, oh, well, you were hallucinating. Right. And that may be true. But I have hallucinated and seen real stuff, and I've hallucinated and seen stuff that wasn't real, yep. and uh, and so that's a fair that's a fair fight. If you want to dismiss what I'm about to say as well, you just dreamed it all, maybe. But during this moment, uh, it was well known that our cult leader would not participate in the hallucinogenics, and instead, what he would do was he would take people who were under the effects of hallucinogenics, and he would tap into their deepest fears. Wow. 
mimic, mock their fears. And there was a mass agreement, and it was a little bit entertaining, again, as sick as it was. It was entertaining to those watching uh, uh, this young girl bawling her eyes out while um, the cult leader had a pitchfork in his hand pretending to be the devil. Um, and, and then when I said, what, what, what's he doing? The response was, uh, oh, hey man, he's just helping her get set free. And I thought, okay. And then he did something to the girl and everybody in the group around the fire laughed. And I still didn't feel comfortable inside, Mm -hmm. but I was like, I, I, I think I, I laughed probably obnoxiously or whatever. And at that point, our cult leader looked at me and he comes over and he puts his foot and his pitchfork in the fire. Mm. And he says, okay, now it's your turn, Matt. Let's talk about all the sins that are going to bury you in hell. To which was definitely his MO because what was odd, and this is why I know there was a spiritual force at work, because he proceeded to tell me things that I know no one in that circle knew. Mm. Things that I did believe that if there was a hell, I, it, these are the things that would probably put me there. Right. <laughs> and, and again, his MO was to expose your fears so that you could face them and overcome them. So another reason why I don't believe this was just a hallucinogenic. Now, everything else I might have been seeing around that might have been, but this moment was a very supernatural moment to me. I immediately looked at a friend of mine. I said, I need you to take me home. He takes me to my house. Uh, later that night, another friend of mine who had been involved comes in and he looks at me and he says, Matt, his name was Matt and my name was Matt. And he looks at me and he says, Matt, I got something to tell you. I saw something tonight. And I mean, of course, it was just kind of funny for a bunch of guys on hallucinogenic drugs, <laughs> which I'm, I saw some things too. But he says, he says, I saw some things that I don't even know how to tell you. And I said, you go first because I saw some things too. And he said, I think our cult leader, uh, and he called him by name, not our cult leader, but he said, I think he, I think he's the, the Antichrist. And I said, I think he is too. And from that moment, I started putting a barrier between he and I mm-hmm. and trying to separate because, again, I wasn't a Christian. I did not really believe in a God. And if there was a God, I didn't attribute any any name to him or a character to him. I knew the stories kind of of Jesus, and I knew there was supposed to be some all-supreme being. Um, so I dropped it. I, I, I just had to separate because I didn't know how to respond to it or answer it. Uh, fast forward, it was that same Christmas day. Christmas day, so roughly 60 days later, um, where I was with members of that cult, and they were giving me these ideas of the more deeper philosophies. And it's funny because there's a scripture that talks about Jesus and how what the enemy in, intended uh, um, for, for evil, God intended for good, and that Jesus went to a cross and suffered, but through that, it was for our salvation. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that verse that God, you know, that the Christian God, that what he intended for, um, uh, what, he, what seemed like evil, what the enemy intended for evil, he intended for good. So here I am this night, Christmas Day. Well, it's Christmas Day, but it's Christmas night. Mm-hmm. And um, all these cult guys are trying to give me all their philosophies and things. And man, I was, I was fully abandoned to it. I was on the edge of just going all in, going, this is the great, uh, literally my words were, this, this is the greatest news I've ever heard. 
And it was a very controversial idea. I'll go ahead and say it. It would probably take a whole other podcast for me to unpack this. <laughs> well, this is a two-parter. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the things they said was, Matt, you save yourself. And my Christian home bringing from 10 to 13 kind of kicked in and I wanted to say, no, Jesus saves, but I was like, I don't believe that. Mm. I don't really believe that. So I can't say that. Mm. I went to a kitchen and I prayed to the only form of God I knew. And I just said, God, I think that's a demon Mm. talking to me. And I remember being taught something about if you ever find yourself face to face with a demon, you don't entertain it because it can overtake you. Right. And that's just a a thing I was taught. I didn't understand it. I don't even understand it to this day. I just believed it in that moment. And I said, God, don't let that demon overtake me. Mm. And I went back in there and I listened to them. And I'm telling you, I was right on the edge when they said, you can save yourself and you can go to heaven tonight. As long as you believe Mm. you can go to heaven tonight. And I thought, well, that's the greatest news I've ever heard that I can go to heaven tonight. And I said, and that's so great. That's worth living and dying for. If you knew on Friday you were going to win the lottery, you would not care about losing your house on Monday. Mm-hmm. And so the idea and the concept of this, I could go to heaven, started to, to really just change me. And again, this was coming at the hands and the philosophies of, of cult members. And But I laid down that night and I just, I prayed and I said, God, is this true? I can go to heaven? And this is where my entire hometown said, Matt did so many drugs. Now he's talking to Jesus because it's my testimony that I did hear God speak back to me and say, that's right. I love you enough to take you right where you are. Mm -hmm. And I responded. I said, God, you're going to have to because I'm high. And, but I said, but if this is real and heaven is for me, that I want to live to tell everybody how to get there. Mm-hmm. And the next day I woke up and I immediately went to the bar that I used to hang out at. And I walked in the door and I said, Hey, y'all can go to heaven. God wants people to go to heaven. You should think about that. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know what the right message was. I didn't say a sinner's prayer. I just knew there was this reality that, that the God that I didn't even know wanted me to be with him mm-hmm. in heaven. And, and he said he would take me there. And, uh, it was probably, it was exactly a week later where I walked into a church, not knowing anything about repentance or the Bible or anything. Um, and a guy called me, a a missionary from Russia was preaching and he just said, there's somebody in here who wants prayer. You can come forward. And I walked to the altar I hadn't been, I'd been wearing the same clothes probably for six weeks, probably just without taking a bath. And, Mm. um, I walked to the altar and he just said, what can I do for you? And I said, I'm a drug addict. And that thought had never crossed my mind until that moment. And, uh, I knew the Lord set me free that night, but again, I didn't say a sinner's prayer. I didn't have any adventure with that. So if I went on and on and told you my involvement coming out of darkness, the cult and the members that were right there were even instrumental unknowingly in the hand of God Mm. to lead me to what I now know was Jesus. Mm -hmm. And the moment I came to that conclusion, they were right there with me. 
And I looked at them and I said, y'all, Jesus has to be God. And, and they said, no, 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 you can believe in whatever you want to believe, but you can't believe that. Wow. And I said, why not? And they said, because if you, if you do that, you're going to become a Christian. You're going to want to make all of us Christians. And I said, I don't care what you believe. I'm just telling you, I can't unsee what I've now seen Mm -hmm. that Jesus had to be God. And, and I shared that with them and it was, well, you know, just don't try to make us Christians. Mm. And man, it be, it later became a firestorm in my hometown. I, I was, as I was just kind of escaping the darkness, I, I became more of a street corner preacher and found myself going toe to toe, even with our cult leader in public spaces mm-hmm. and, and having to challenge, you know, not just the philosophies because I understood the train of thoughts and they're hard, mm-hmm. they're hard to argue with, with people who can't see the truth. Right. But the power of God is without argument. Mm -hmm. And the greatest power is not all the miracles. It's not all the supernatural. It really is in transformed hearts and transformed lives that love people unto death, Mm -hmm. not because they're suicidal, but they literally love because they see a perfect God that gave Jesus Mm -hmm. for them. Yeah. And, um, that's kind of my story and I'm sticking to it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Your testimony is so powerful. Um, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I'm just sitting here listening to it. And honestly, I have chills because um, what you're describing is just, you know, it's so real. And obviously it, you know, it, um, it, it's terrifying, honestly. Um, but I have actually never spoken to anyone directly, um, who was in a cult or anything like that. Um, I've seen stories and, you know, witnessed some kind of, kind of that kind of stuff on Instagram or something like that, but I've never really directly heard a a testimony from an ex cult member or from someone who used to practice Satanism. Um, but I just have kind of questions, but also what kept leaping out to me from your story and especially unfortunately the story um, with the pig is how it mimics the gospel and how even the act of casting one's sins onto the pig until it's bruised, broken, bloody. And then, you know, the pig has to die for those sins. Like anyone who knows the gospel knows that that's, that's what Jesus went through, that that's, that's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. Um, he was whipped for our healing and he was, you know, beaten and bruised for our iniquities. Like that's the, that, that's, that's what we base our Christianity on. And so, um, it astounds me that Satan is still just using the same game plan, the same tactics that he used over 2000, 3000 years ago, the same tactics he used in the garden. Like it's the same story over and over again. He can only mimic because God is the creator. God is the one that has brought us salvation. And so it's crazy how the enemy will use what is supposed to be good for evil and what is supposed to be miraculous for something horrible, you know, like the parallels just kept astounding me. I, uh, I kind of relate it to what, and, and I'm, this is pers- perspective. Okay. This, I, uh, this is not theology. <laughs> <laughs> this is not theology. Please don't quote me on this one. Um, <laughs> But my perspective for those, get this, whatever I was seeking, I was seeking in darkness. Mm -hmm. And yet 
of all those that were surrounding me that were still seeking something. I, um, I cannot not love and still think about those that don't know the truth because for whatever God's infinite reason, he still rescued me from it when I wasn't even looking for him. I didn't even believe in him. And, and, um, he had no reason. I don't know if he heard my prayer in that kitchen. I, I mean, cause I don't even know if I was praying to him, but I, I guess maybe I was, I, I don't know, but somehow he still chose to rescue me. And I feel a great responsibility in that. I think that, uh, the way I see a, a non-believer and man, I'm going to say this very carefully you have no capacity for the things of the spirit of God, but by the spirit of God, yeah. there is uh, Jesus said, no man comes to the father unless the spirit draws him. Mm-hmm. And even while I was dead in my sin, not alive, not praying, not still seeking something while I was dead, he died for me. Mm-hmm. And so I have this great compassion for those that are, that are, that are in that kind of darkness. And it's, I just call it, it's like an, it's a, it's an animalistic ignorance. They don't know. They're just doing what dogs do. You know And I'm You're saying you're calling all, all people who don't know the truth dogs. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that is the way the gospel describes. They return to their vomit mm-hmm. because they go by instinct and they only know what their instinct tells them. Mm-hmm. I'm hungry. I go for food. I'm thirsty. I drink water. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm scared. I defend myself. I devour, um, and I conquer. And so they don't, they don't know any, any, any differently. And so I, 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 I'm deeply compassionate on that side of it. And I think because there is that ignorant side, I think there must be a graceful way to approach even some of the more, um, seemingly benign issues of, of, of Halloween. Okay. Uh, because there are people that still, you do what you do in ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're going to go into the Halloween topic, I want to I want to kind of go on the record in saying I am not against parents dressing their children up and going door to door for some candy. Okay, um, I uh, in, in spite of my spiritual connection, even to the holiday, or even further year long in three years in a, in a satanic cult. Uh, I am not against, and I would not want to rob some family of just what is freedom and fun to just allow their child to dress up like a superhero and go, go down the road. At the same time, my experiences are not ignorant that there is and can be something. Well, let me say this. There is something that parents must consider mm-hmm. that they allow their children to be entertained with. Mm-hmm. Um, my, you know, when I came, you know, after coming to the Lord and and marrying and having my children, my wife uh, grew up in a Baptist home, uh, grew up under Charles Stanley. I mean, it was, she was, she was Christian in the eighties and you couldn't get more Christian than that. So, um, you know, for her, Halloween was just a fun holiday to go, go get some candy. And that's what she wanted for our kids. But for me, there was a deep association with it. I wanted nothing to do with it. Nothing. And it took me 
Um, well, it took my wife a lot of patience and my, and I, I made a choice because I knew that early on there was an argument that I could not win with my wife. And I don't think all arguments should be try. You shouldn't be trying to win because right. winners makes losers mm-hmm. winning something makes somebody a loser. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to just, I didn't want to just win an argument with her. I can still have my perspective and my experience and be sensitive to those things without bruising my conscience and still understand that my wife has a liberty and a freedom at the way she approaches something. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. And I think that that's good, healthy maturity in Christ uh, to not be quick to judge what one allows. You know, and, and I think it's, um, I might be misquoting the book, but I think it's Galatians where it says it's almost like the earthly elements that we as believers would even say we ridicule those who, who esteem one day over another day or another esteems every day the same. And so I will say this, there's a great historical perspective that I do do believe that makes Halloween worth celebrating if you want to celebrate something. And I would be, be, you know, I'd lean into that word celebrating. What does it mean to celebrate? Mm -hmm. Does going door to door with candy and dressing up mean that you're celebrating something? Right. Um, and giving your heart to it with excitement and joy that that time is here. I can be excited about candy. I can be excited about getting to play pretend because I'm a former kids minister. <laughs> and uh, and I can be excited about going out on a cold fall day and and watching my children just have a have good fun. time going to get candy. I can, I can be excited about that. Um, and so, but I'm not necessarily celebrating what another may say the roots of Halloween are, there is a, there is a, a Christian root in Halloween. The word itself comes from Christian, uh, Christian terms, all hollows Eve. It's all, it's the Eve of all that is holy. In fact, the, the, the early church even recognized this because they, they attributed it with the death of saints and it was a day to remember the martyrs, a day to, and we do that on All Saints Day, which is actually November 1st, the eve of all that is holy, a day to remember those who have died in Christ. Mm-hmm. And I do think that in Christian practice, I'm kind of glad that there is this thing that we all have to reconcile and wrestle with. Mm-hmm. And I do think that we should be able to reconcile and wrestle with it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things that I think we can redeem, and there are things that we should wrestle with. We wrestle not with flesh and blood and candy right. or costumes. Right. We do wrestle with uh, strongholds. And that is all, those strongholds are not just principalities of darkness and spirits in unseen places. That's part of it. It is also strongholds in people's minds and the way yeah. they think about certain things. Um, because again, the satanic cult, we were quite content with you to think one way about it. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, our practice of it was something even darker than the pretend. Right. If it had just been pretend, it might as well just been a, just some some cultural Halloween. But there was a deep there was a deepness in our hearts about it, and so I have these perspectives about Halloween that I do think that it is it's wise to um, to consider what are your boundaries here mm-hmm. for me and my children. When my children were young, my wife. Um, I would say she more graciously conceded to a conviction that I had and a conscience issue I had with um, trick-or-treating in general. So 
Julie, my daughter, she's now 21 and my, my other is 18. And they would probably tell you, listen, I, I was so mad at my dad because he wouldn't let us go trick-or-treating. Mm. Um, and they may understand now, but for me, it wasn't about, I didn't want my child dressing up. It wasn't, I didn't want them to have candy. I just chose Halloween as a, as a lesson in my household that where I was going to teach my kids at a young age, we didn't have to do everything culture did. So let me stop you right there. Let's have a discussion. Let's just talk about it. Like let's really just have our different perspectives and come at Halloween as a whole. Um, because I grew up that way. I grew up where we never trick-or-treated. We, you know, my family was the family that, you know, closed all the lights and did not allow trick-or-treaters to come. We did not have candy for anyone. You know, we weren't allowed to participate. I probably snuck it once trick-or-treating when I was like 14. I was at a party. Um, it was a safe neighborhood and, you know, it was a Halloween party, but like we snuck out and we did a little trick-or-treating or something. And, um, yeah, it was, you know, it was just the one time. But other than that, I, we never did it. Um, I just, we just didn't grow up with it. And, you know, for many of you who have listened for a while and, you know, you heard my parents' testimony on the spiritual warfare, warfare episode that like, you know, in Haiti, all around the world, like Halloween is not a humongous celebration. Like the only people who are celebrating it, you know, if you're celebrating Halloween in Haiti, it's because you're sacrificing a goat. Like they really take it seriously. Like it's very dark for them. It's, it's, it is a demonic holiday type thing. Like they know that there are actual, you know, um, witches and people who are practicing voodoo who are doing things on this day. Like it's very, I get it. It's extremely yeah. real for them. Yeah. And for me it was complete opposite in the sense of there was always, we're at church all the time. Yeah. So my parents were always pastors working in the church. There was always a fall festival. It was always Bible characters walking around and they would always <laughs> like, you know, like the blue Bible guy. And he was like all blue. I don't know who he was, but he is stuck in my memory. Um, but it was always at church and we always had fall festivals. I do remember going trick or treating older, but it was always at yeah. church still like yeah. growing up. So I never associated it with, witches and ghosts and I was always a black cat that's just what I wanted to be <laughs> yes it's the easiest face paint I mean it's just like a couple of strings it and a black nose <laughs> um, but it was always fun it was always but the gospel was always preached like it wasn't just candy and fun like mm -hmm. everyone went in the sanctuary at some point the bible guy talked right. like okay so there is this argument right? There is the argument of, okay, we as Christians are trying to reclaim the holiday, reclaim it for Jesus. So if it is just the candy and costumes, if it is just us trying to be light to the dark world, you know, um, or doing the fall festivals, like I have nothing against fall festivals. I go to them, you know, like our church has one. Um, does it matter if it's on the day of Halloween? Does it matter if, you know, you go as something scary or if you're trying to be, you know, you know, a creepy clown or something like that? And along with that argument, it's like, okay, well, I don't want to, I don't want to celebrate a holiday that glorifies death or that glorifies something that God has already defeated. You know, like God's defeated death. Why are we decorating our lawns with tombstones and, you know, decorating our houses with skeletons or, you know, doing something that is glorifying the thing that God has defeated. And on top of that, I feel like a good argument against, okay, we're reclaiming the holiday. It's like, okay, why do we need to reclaim something that, once again, God has already defeated, that God has already put under his foot. Um, the Bible says that 
Oh, he has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Why am I spending a whole month trying to scare myself silly with these movies, with these costumes, with all of this stuff? Like, why am I inviting those spirits of fear and discontent into my home? You know, it's either real or it's not. It's either serious or it's not. The Bible either says it or it doesn't. So my question for Christians often on this holiday and on this day is, okay, why hold on so tightly to something that you have to justify so hard to even partake in? But I was talking to my mother the other day about this and I was telling her like, honestly, I don't even know completely where I stand. Like, I know I sound very strong in my convictions right now, but honestly, it's a struggle for for me because, you know, I grew up one way and my husband grew up a totally different way. You know, he grew up loving Halloween, loving the, loving the holiday, loving the movies, doing all that stuff. Like he has very fond memories of Halloween. And, you know, our children are very young right now. You know, they're both, they're two under two. Um, Hazel will be two next month and they're not really of trick-or-treating age, but it's still a discussion in our household. Like, okay, so what are we going to do? Are we just going to do fall festivals? Are we going to let them trick-or-treat once or twice? Or, you know, how how far are we going to take this? How far is the line for us? But I also know that, you know, for now we're like, okay, well, we don't want to watch scary movies in our house. We don't want to invite those, those things in our home. You know, um, we'll go to the fall festivals, but I, you know, and right now we don't trick or treat, but we don't overly celebrate or partake in what is culturally known as Halloween because, you know, we're, we do compromise on some things, but some things I, I do think that the Bible does make it clear. And I do think that the Bible would rather Christians take a firm stand against it and be more on the firm stand of being set apart and being holy versus going along with the world and pretending like this day has no meaning and that it is just fun. But I also like what you said, Pastor Matt, about that this is something that we wrestle with, like that this is something that Christians should go back and forth about um, in, in moderation, because I do think that although we should take a harder stance about it, and you know, that's my personal opinion that we should, as Christians take a harder stance against darkness. But I do think that it is something that a lot of Christians do go back and forth. I know for me personally, that every year, honestly, my conviction does grow stronger, but I know that certain people are at different stages in their faith, in their walk with Jesus, you know, in their understanding of the spiritual and the non-spiritual and everyone should be allowed the time and the space to make the decision for themselves and to come to the conclusion for themselves. Um, and to ask themselves, you know, why do I cling so tightly? Why do I get so defensive or offended if someone says that Christians shouldn't celebrate Halloween? Like, um, I think that is something that Christians should challenge themselves with. Like that's a question Christians should ask themselves, you know, if you are for completely Halloween, you know, like, um, but if you're kind of like me or like a lot of other Christians who have been kind of questioning it for a few years, but haven't really made a decision, you know, um, I think that it's, it's a good place to start, you know, Hey, why does this bother me? If I see it online, I have to comment that, Oh, it's okay. It's just fun. It's just candy. Let people live. God will judge me. You know, like, why does that elicit that response in myself? And even if you stand on the you know, the line of, okay, well, this day means nothing to me. God knows my heart. God knows my intentions. It's like, okay, first of all, with that phrase, God knows my heart. Okay. God says that your heart is deceitful. So let's get that out of the way. Second, even if your intentions are pure and good, and you just want your children to be a cute little fuzzy animal for Halloween, that's fine. But 
for someone down the street from you and it's closer than you think. Um, this is going to be humorous to those who do live in the Douglasville area. But, you know, uh, I was on Women of Douglasville, a Facebook group for, you know, the women of Douglasville County, which is, you know, where we where we're at. And a lady a few times has posted postings for spiritual cleansings and, you know, like oh, do you want your tarot cards read and stuff like that? Like there are real people practicing witchcraft in your neighborhood, you know, like, and so just because it means nothing to you doesn't mean that the person down the street isn't doing dark things on this day, you know, like it is a very real thing. You know, we've said it a million times on this podcast. We've said it on, you know, the addiction episode and on the LGBTQ episode and on the spiritual warfare episode that there are real principalities that are around and that we as Christians are called to pray against. And so I just, I just wish that sometimes it was taken just a little more seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that because I do, I think that there is it's often better to wrestle with it yeah. and just, you know, Jesus, there's a song that I like to quote. <laughs> and this is actually a Jack Johnson song. It's one of my favorite. And, um, he says, there's a line in the song and he says, um, um, you've drawn so many lines in the sand, mm. you've lost the fingernails on your hand. Mm. How are you going to scratch any backs? Wow. And, and I think that we as believers, listen, holiness is being set apart. Mm-hmm. Yes. At the same time, there at what level does our holiness separate us from, and, and as a, we're drawing so many lines with, you know, that, that, that this is a no, and this is a no, and th- this is a, a maybe, and then who gets to draw those lines? And this is where, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Mm-hmm. And yes, I do believe in a liberty that there's a set free from bondage, but I also believe in a liberty where the spirit of, we trust the spirit of God is going to help, help us make that decision and be with us here, with us there. And then there might be a, a, a recanting of it where you kind of come back and say, man, that was dumb. I shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. You know, in as much as, you know, you, we get older, you know, you, your children are young now and, and um, I'm now on the cusp of, of, um, entering and I don't know, probably next five years, I'll be having grandkids, yeah. you know, em- empty nesters. And, yeah. and as you, as you let your children go mm. to make their decisions, you as a parent experience this transformation that where you would have once been restrictive. Now you're just like, I just want you to come home, Yeah, you know? And, and thank you for calling me and asking my opinion on this or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, it's like, thank you for opening the door to me. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that God is completely passive to stand back. I think that God is so good. Sometimes he just reaches right in and he just stops and he makes things absolutely clear. But then he's also this God that, that says, hey, I'm going to walk with you and you may make a wrong decision here, but I'm going to catch you. Okay. And, and then sometimes he lets us make those decisions and we reap a consequence for those but I still love the God that is with us in the wrestling of yeah. it. For me and our our children, we didn't do that when they were younger. Uh, I will say this too. If, if you're a parent and you're listening, this is something that I was meditating on the other day. There's this concept called um, 
oh my gosh, it's going to escape me now. <laughs> but it's it's this concept, uh, method acting. Yes. Okay, you're familiar with it. So you've probably heard of it in a ne- in a negative connotation uh, because, you know, some people have seen the results of method acting. And I would say one of the most famous results of method acting uh, in pop culture in the last 15, 10 to 15 years was uh, Heath Ledger. The yeah, the Joker. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so definitely one of the most most impactful, darker sides of method acting. However, with some research, method acting is just that. It's a method of acting. Mm-hmm. It, but method acting in particular is where people start to reach into uh, their own experience, their own emotional experience to bring more life to a character that they're trying to play on screen, play on stage. Yeah. It's actually, I've done it in a music video that wasn't a music song. It wasn't a song that I produced or anything. I was doing it for another artist and I had to, I had to become a, a, a lost guy <laughs> who was getting saved in this, mm-hmm. in this, uh, I had to cry on cue. And, and so I literally, like before I went on film, I, and literally, and when I say film, I mean, this is how old the video is. It was when we really filmed things, not digital mm. <laughs> media. And, uh, I had to, right before they filmed me, I literally had probably 50, 60 people in downtown Buford, Georgia, pr- laying hands on me, praying for me to just help me get the grace so that they can get this shot in mm. this video. And, and so method acting is definitely a method. Here's the, what sets it apart. When the actor goes to pull up unresolved or resolved emotions, resolved or unresolved trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if that's what we see in actors who are supposed to be skilled and mature and hopefully counseled to, to have healed from their trauma, imagine a kid. A kid at Halloween, and I, I know this is going to be a total hypothetical, but I don't think it's that far of a stretch. Mm-hmm. There's a kid in Halloween, his parents, he wants to dress up like a witch, warlock, whatever, cast spells. Okay. Um, do I believe that kid's going to walk away and want to go into a satanic cult? No, I don't necessarily believe that's the trajectory that it may, and could it? Sure. I mean, it happened to me, but it wasn't because I was dressing up like a warlock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. But that might be one stretch, but let's just say, what do warlocks, what do witches do? They want to manipulate their situations and control their situations. Mm-hmm. Now take a kid whose home life is his parents are in a bitter fight all the time. There's divorce, there's abuse. Don't you think that kid wants some control? Mm-hmm. He, if he can control his atmosphere, he would want to control his atmosphere. Yeah. That's just natural. Now gets into a warlock costume, wants to play the character, imagine the character uh, at Halloween. Kids automatically pull from their own experience. There's this exchange that happens in method acting that when you draw from unresolved emotion, unresolved trauma, you can actually literally, this is, you can find this on Wikipedia. Just uh, literally you start, you open yourself to actually draw from the trauma of the fictitious character. Is that not opening yourself up? Almost the same thing as opening yourself up to a demon. Or, or a spiritual impact. And whether you call it or recognize it as a spiritual impact or just a psychological dysfunction, pick your, pick your wording here. Yeah. My point is, is that if that's what happens to actors and children everywhere are just taking on the character, 
I would say the same thing that they were dressing if the kid has an anger issue, but then he dresses up like the Hulk. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to say, no, you can't dress like the Hulk this year. Yeah. You know, for sure. I'm going to think and, and say, here's a good filter, mom, dad. If you're going to allow your child to dress up this Halloween and you want to let it go, go out trick or treating and you make, you get ready to cross that bridge. I would say think twice about what you're going to allow them to dress up as yeah. because they will be taking on a character. You know, if you're, if you're a parent and you're thinking, you know, and I'm completely on the opposite end of even entertaining this. I'm just like, I'm going to be shut off to it. Then my encouragement would be, um, don't do anything that's going to bruise your conscience. Mm -hmm. Don't do anything. If, if, if that's where you stand, God's grace be with you and his wisdom be with your children in the, in the long run, because they probably won't understand it. Mm -hmm. What I would encourage you to do is, Let's also honor that to another, to his own servant, a servant stands, to his own master, a servant stands or falls. Mm -hmm. And, and those who are looking to redeem these moments, um, do so with wisdom and grace. And I like what you said, you know, is that you do have to think, do I want to represent darkness or light? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I'm not saying everybody should be going around dressing up as angels. That can be a little corny. Um, we don't go to nothing church. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Hey, that's, you know, that's, if that, if that's where you can, if that's, if that's where you can draw your line to have peace in your home mm-hmm. and still honor Christ then do that. Right. Um, and, and that's another thing too, you know, especially for a lot of these are, are hard decisions because you have parents, mm-hmm. mom and dad who are trying to make decisions from different backgrounds and different right. experience. Um, so, strive, wrestle for agreement mm-hmm. with your spouse on these things too. Mm-hmm. wrestle for agreement and, um, and be wise. Yeah. I just really love the perspective of if your child does want to be a certain thing and they have, you've noticed like a pattern of behavior, just taking that into consideration. Cause even working with kids every Sunday, you can tell when a child is off and you know, every Sunday there's always one, somebody that's kind of having a rough morning or something. And it, they will tell you how they're feeling Mm -hmm. and kids are sponges and they will take everything in. And so I just, I've never heard that perspective before. And you know, if our, whenever is like, Hey, I want to wear this bloody mask. I'll be like, where did you get that from? (laughs) And I'll have the opportunity (laughs) to sit down with her and talk. And so I just think that's really a great perspective that you've brought is really talking. Three-year-olds communicate with me and can tell me that they're upset so they will t- tell you what's going on. And I just think that's really great. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. You know, at Christmas time, we like to, we, we walk around and uh, we know there's a secular form of Christmas. Mm-hmm. You know, the world has its version and we have our version. Yeah. And um, it's still nice to walk around every department store and hear them singing songs about your king. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think that uh, it would be, uh, it would be really great that if you decide that you're going to tip on the side of, I'm going to find a way to redeem this. I think the other thing to redeem is this gratitude that, man, there's a whole world next week that's going to go out. Yeah. That is curious of what is after this life is over. Mm-hmm. What is outside of this? Is there any other power? And there's a real curiosity and in children are even entertaining that curiosity too. Yeah. Um, and so, and I, I'm thankful that this is something 
that gives us an opportunity to say, where is power within the church? Mm-hmm. Where are we showing, where are we modeling for our children that there is an all powerful God, that there is an answer, that that tombstone that's in that person's yard is not the end. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the thing you need to be prepared for. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we're preparing for, you know? And, um, and if we do that, I think then, um, we'll, we'll do well. Yeah. You, know? you want to close this out first? Yeah. Father, God, I thank you. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you lead us into truth. Uh, Lord, that you guide us. Lord, uh, for those that uh, are, are wrestling with this, God, I pray that you would give wisdom and peace. Um, for those, Lord, uh, who are, are going with it, I pray, Lord, that there would be uh, freedom and joy and safety, God. Um, and Lord, for those, Lord, that are wrapped up in the in the darkness of it, Lord, just stand in opposition of every of everything we've had to say about this, God. I just pray that that you would just reach through, uh, that you would soften the hardened walls, and God, that you would you do miracles, you do real supernatural miracles in families um, that hear this, and you you equip them uh, so that you might be honored, Lord, even among among those that are not yet with you. Uh, Lord, in the way we, in the choices we make and in the way uh, we lead our families uh, through these seasons. In Jesus' name, I just speak, speak blessing on them. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's a wrap on this week's episode. We pray that you enjoyed it. It opened your eyes and we'll see you back next week. Mm-hmm.